Hi there. I'm Krista Scott Dixon, and this is another episode of The Stumptuous Files. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, who's a well-known health and fitness presence online, as well as a medical doctor who specializes in treating chronic diseases with nutrition and exercise where possible. Unlike many healthcare professionals, he also focuses on compassionate and client-centered care, using the best practices of change psychology to help guide rather than push his patients towards leading better and healthier lives. Now, I know you, I've known you for a while, but there are some people, believe it or not, on the internet that don't know you. (laughs) So, I mean, let's start with sharing a little bit about your athletic background as well as your formal training as a doctor, because I think those two things are quite relevant in terms of what you do. So maybe let's start by telling the listeners, like what your background is in terms of those two things, both again, your background as an athlete and your training as a doctor. Yeah, that's kind of my, my elevator pitch is what I call it. Is basically I grew up, uh, mom an elementary school teacher, dad a biology high school teacher and the wrestling coach, and a, a brother four years older than I am who was a big mentor to me. So I, I grew up with a lot of science and teaching from my parents. And um, w- one of the biggest turning points in my life was my brother went through high school right before me because he's four years older. He was a, uh, a phenom in wrestling. He was four times uh, state finalist, two times state champ in Michigan, one of the best in his era. And so here I come looking to be pretty much the next coming of him. And my dad's the wrestling coach and everything. And so my first year, my freshman year, he's graduated, went to wrestle at Michigan State. And I come in and I didn't even start. And so it was kind of it was humbling because it was like wow I can't just rely on my genetics and and uh, and my name to be good I I and I had a, a much different build though he's started off at five foot um, five foot tall and then uh, uh, ended up he's five five now I I came in at like five ten as a freshman and so I was kind of lankier didn't have that stocky powerful build. And so I didn't start that first year, and it was it was extremely humbling. And and actually, it was you know reading a lot of the testosterone nation stuff back then. How am I going to get bigger and stronger to be good at wrestling? Is kind of what I thought. And so I saw actually the heavier weights, um, the guys that were like as tall as I was but heavier. They didn't look as they didn't look as athletic. And I'm like, well, so if I gain a bunch of muscle and strength, I could go up to their weight and, and just beat up on them. So I really got into exercise and nutrition science. And there was, you know, John Berardi writing for Testosterone Nation, you know, massive eating, all these uh, cool little articles and really got into it. And eventually gained like 30 or 40 pounds that first year, went from 145 to like 185. Then I ended up starting my sophomore year. Um, but still didn't even make it to state. And by this time, my brother was a two-time state finalist, um, state champ. However, again, I continued to work extremely hard, getting really into exercise, nutrition, science, and, and eventually gained another like 20, 30 pounds. So now I was like 215 pounds. I became a state champ that year, and you know my hormones started kicking in a little bit, and really pro- you know, propelled myself in both athletics, wrestling, and football ended up getting a scholarship uh, wrestling at UNC Chapel Hill. I actually went to Michigan State to play football originally, but ended up wrestling at UNC Chapel Hill. Did really well there. Pursued my um, medical or uh, wanted to go to medical school. And using this exercise in nutrition science, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to kind of uh, take just a fraction of this passion I have for propelling myself in athletics and use it for the general population. And so, you know, I wasn't actually interested in performance for, for helping my patients. I was more excited about just taking just a small little bit of that, um, that uh, passion I had for nutrition and exercise and using it as medicine. So then I went to medical school at, at Virginia Tech's osteopathic school, uh, medical school, um, and uh, four years, you, you do the first two years in the classroom, next two years in the 
in the clinics, um, decided to do family medicine and then specialize in obesity medicine. So basically, um, now my whole goal is using exercise and, and nutrition as medicine uh, to help people prevent and, and uh, treat chronic disease. So that's kind of the whole, that's the quick pitch. I mean, I guess it was a little bit longer than quick, but. <laughs> that's great. Well, it gives that's us a good uh, sense of who you are and, and like how you came to this. And so let's kind of keep going with that theme of specializing in obesity medicine. Like, give me a sense of the kind of patients that you might see in your clinic day to day. Yeah. So it could range from just uh, like a 40-year-old guy to uh, uh, maybe an 18-year-old girl to a 95-year-old woman. I mean, because I, I get the full full gamut of, of patients, but um, a lot of people come to see me for weight loss management. So it could be someone that's just that – most people wouldn't see them as – obese but they have you know some of the the markers of obesity like uh, maybe like an increased waist circumference and maybe their BMI might be just in the overweight range you know like 27 or so but their waist is like um, you know, full, over 40 inches or uh, 100, and, 100 and so centimeters um, um, or it could be someone with a you know what people would call it like morbid obesity over 40 bmi you know 400 you know 400 some pounds so it's really this there's a big spectrum there i i really like this grounding in real people because it definitely helps us get a sense of like what this might look like in real life and i think that we often by we i sort of mean like mass media or whatever we often mm-hmm. talk about things like type 2 diabetes or the so-called obesity epidemic in very abstract terms and you know, on the internet, <laughs> we argue yeah. about whether whether these things are true or real. And right. so before we get into more specific stuff about how you might approach working with your patients, can you tell us a little bit about the biology of adipose tissue or fat tissue and related metabolic diseases and why having too much body fat could potentially be a health risk? Because I'm interested in going beyond this sort of simplistic idea about whether body mass index, BMI, is bad or good. And I'd like to explore the physiology here a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, this is exactly what, um, you know, a lot of these, my brother's actually on a committee trying to discuss what is the definition of obesity. It's not just anthropometric. It's not just a, a, just a measurement of our body, uh, depending on weight and height and and it, it, it's a it's a kind of a clinical diagnosis. So actually, I'm doing some lectures on it. I just did a grand rounds last week, exactly on this topic. So there's a term called adiposopathy or sick fat, and that's generally the fat that's around our our midsection area, stuff around our, our liver and our visceral fat. And the adiposopathy there, um, is what it, it actually. We think we thought that fat was actually just inert. You know, we just it just looked bad. It made us look bad in our in our bathing suits, and we felt bad about it and everything. It's just a place to store energy, and then we're supposed to burn it later, type of thing. But now we're finding out, or we found out um, through a lot of research, and there's some good pioneers in the subject. But basically, it's it's our biggest endocrine organ in our body and it's secreting a lot of chemicals and adipokines they call it and based on where it's located it's also uh, a lot of these um, uh, fatty acids are circulating all over our um, all over the place in our blood causing all sorts of things so when I say adiposopathy so things like uh, insulin resistance so there's multiple um, multiple pathways of how it can cause insulin resistance and then also blood pressure changes, cholesterol changes. Um, and those are the things that we, you know, we really see the, those metabolic markers on. But the other, the other um, thing to it is, is the fat mass disease. So the stuff that's maybe not necessarily from, um, from a cardiometabolic standpoint, but from just like the excess weight and mass, so like sleep apnea, just having excess weight around our neck I see patients a few times a day. I send patients for sleep studies because their necks are so large. They're snoring. They feel tired all the time. They don't even realize it. And then you you send them for a sleep study, and they 
they're basically not breathing at, at night and they're not actually getting good sleep. You know, or osteoarthritis from all the weight on their knees. And then there's also, you know, stress incontinence, uh, reflux disease. So there's kind of two components, just not only the metabolic um, component from the fat around our liver and, and our visceral uh, fat, but also just the weight and the mass. So it's, um, we're starting to see, you know, because you, you get these people that maybe we consider metabolically healthy. They don't have any, they have no issues, no blood pressure issues, no cholesterol issues. Um, their, their glucoses are fine, their insulins are fine. And maybe they maybe they're fine. Maybe they live happily ever after. But maybe they'll start developing some of those fat mass disease things um, with the osteoarthritis and the and the stress incontinence and the GERD and the sleep apnea. But they don't have any other metabolic issues. So it's it's starting to take this path of where we we got to see if the obesity is actually affecting them in certain ways. I really like the distinction that you're making here because you're essentially distinguishing between like a, a metabolic, what we might call like a chemical, hormonal kind of issue versus a mechanical, structural kind of issue. And obviously both of those things are relevant, but I, I feel like what you're getting at too is a distinction that kind of explains a lot of the diversity in studies about BMI or body fat and health because you know, one of the problems with a lot of the research on body fat and weight and obesity is that many of the studies are very simplistic. So for example, like a study might look at how does body mass index, uh, body mass index correlate to longevity, for example, right? And then it might lump a whole group of people together. Like we might put together someone who has a lower BMI just because they're naturally smaller or lighter, but is healthy. And a person who has the same lower BMI because they're in the early stages of an undiagnosed chronic disease, right? And so yeah. what I really like here is the way that you're talking about how this manifests in in real people. And like one of the things I think that people raise about body mass index is that, again, based on these kind of chemical versus mechanical factors that you're describing, it's not always a good measure of health and fitness. And I, I think that's fair for people like you and me who may both yeah. be pushing the limits of our weight categories <laughs> towards overweight yeah. because we're all engine, right? We've got all that muscle and bone mass, or at least I like to think so. It's not just cookies and ribs and stuff. <laughs> but, um, you know, with that said, how often do you actually see people in your clinic who have a higher body mass index and maybe a higher level of body fat who are in fact extremely fit? Like how many NFL players or heavyweight wrestlers or boxers are you seeing here who might be heavy or even a little fat, but very highly conditioned and healthy and fit? I mean, not often, you know, so that's the thing is most people on the internet, you know, that we, we kind of conglomerate all the big athletes, you know, former you know, wrestlers or whatever, power lifters, we're all kind of hanging out and, oh yeah, BMI is awful. But in real life, I don't, I don't actually see too many people with a BMI of over 30 who are, who are running, you know, doing triathlons and, and, and doing, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, I don't know, tough mutter type of things and are actually fit. I really don't. I don't see it that often. Once, once in a while, but then those same patients also have that kind of that fat mass disease with the, with, they have a lot of knee issues and they, you know, we had to work with them on, well, now you can't run, you're going to have to bike and then that, you know, can cause issues too. Um, so no, I, I don't see it that often, to be honest. And that, you know, that's why we, a lot of people are like, oh, the BMI is so bad on mine. And it's like, well, yeah, we're used to athletes that have a lot of muscle mass. And that's when you start using the things like the waist circumference. Um, and even if you wanted to do like a DEXA scan or something like that, but yeah, that's, that's when it becomes really important to know where that fat is located on the person. But I don't even see it that often, to be honest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, and again, I, I'm coming back to the sort of mechanical structural piece that I think is, is really key. And I, I, I'm sure that some people listening who may be fitter may know if they're a little bit heavier. I know for myself, I feel the difference when I train if my weight's gone up 5 or 10 pounds. Uh, even stupid stuff like pull-ups are harder, but you know things start to hurt, right? Like that's mm. when I know it's time to cut back because because there's that mechanical <laughs> structural like yeah. uh, milestone where our body's like, look, man, like this is what the structure can handle and this is what it can't. So I, I really right. like the uh, distinction you're making here. Okay, so I mean, I, I think that looking at quote unquote real people as you're doing is a very important perspective because we're, again, we're not talking about say someone who is already a normal, healthy or lean body fat 
and wants to get even leaner or extra lean, right? Your practice is really not about how to look extra ripped on the beach or yeah. like in a physique yeah. or athletic yeah. competition, right? So we're talking about average people who are not athletes for the most part and who have a level of body fat that may be putting them into the danger zone in terms of their health and their mobility. And so, you, I mean, you've talked about some of the things people might be dealing with. Um, I mean, let's say someone comes in with a metabolic disease and maybe someone who's carrying a fair bit of body fat. You've mentioned a few things, but like in general, what kinds of other things could they be dealing with medically in terms of also like their quality of life? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of things kind of come back to mental health too. Uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily metabolic, but you know, just, they don't, they just don't feel well. Maybe they just have bad habits that maybe they're not sleeping well because they're just up all night doing whatever on online and, and maybe they just have bad habits overall, like sleep hygiene type of stuff. There's, I mean, there, it's it's interesting, you know. You, you you look at somebody like oh, you know they they are have obesity or they're overweight or something like that. But I see all I mean I see all sorts of kind of stuff and uh, that you'd be really surprised about. Um, just random random things. I can't even think of anything right now exactly, but all sorts of things. So there's a whole wide spectrum of <laughs> of things things that could happen to you, basically. Yeah, I mean, because like so. So a lot of people know that I, I do weight loss stuff, but I'm also doing family medicine, general practice things. Um, so I, you know, I get people coming in for dizziness. That's not even related to. I know that's not related to their obesity. But I try to bring. I always try to bring weight loss and 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 good habits into it. But like people come in for you know dizzy, and then we start looking at all sorts of uh, hormonal stuff and things like that. But yeah, sometimes these things are so vague that I can't even. I, yeah, sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it is. I don't know. It's hard to figure out sometimes. Yeah. So I don't know. If that's that's not what you're actually asking. I just I just reflecting back on what people actually come to me for. So. Well, I think it kind of leads into my next que question, actually, because a lot of the work that you're doing is kind of being a bit of a detective, right? Trying to figure out because often people are, are divorced from their own feelings about themselves too, right? So if you say to them like okay, where does it hurt or when does this particular symptom manifest? Maybe they can't even tell you because they themselves yeah. are not quite aware of it. And so I see in part your role as almost helping people to surface their own awareness of themselves. And I know that one of the things you really worked on in your own practice and something that's maybe a little bit less common for many health healthcare professionals is this approach of client-centered treatment. So, I mean, yeah. give me the broad overview of what that is. We'll talk about some specific techniques in a second, but like generally, what does a truly client-centered approach look like? Right. So, so the, I, I guess the, the practitioner-centered approach would be they come in and they, they have a complaint and I say, okay, we're going to prescribe this and see you later out the door. I mean, cause that's, and that's, unfortunately, that's what happens, especially because the system failure and, and um, basically time constraints and also because doctors are just burned out now and maybe, or maybe they aren't trained in lifestyle medicines, you know, it's, it's a, it's a combination of things, but like a patient centered approach, a client centered approach would be, they come in and, and you have to truly, I mean, you have to work hard. You have to actively listen to them because that's one of the problems. We have these computer screens in front of us. You're trying to get your notes done because if you don't, and you're going to try to go home and do your notes later. You're going to forget. And if you don't do it, if the person sues you and your, your note's not complete, you're, you're kind of screwed. So the, the patient-centered approach is having, you know, looking at the patient, really actively listening, reflecting on what they're saying. Make sure you truly do understand what they're saying. Just like, you know, with the motivational interviewing and stuff like that, state what, um, state what you think is going on, reflect on it. And then... Um, work through it basically uh, you know so like for example a patient says um, they're coming in for weight loss instead of going okay well let's see basically you need to eat less and move more so let's put you on a 1200 calorie diet and let's make you eat chicken breast and broccoli um, for dinner and let's make you have uh, a Greek yogurt for breakfast and then you know uh, whatever a salad for lunch the, the patient-centered approach would be like, so, okay, so what are you doing currently right now? And is it okay if we talk about 
your your nutrition and exercise to help with some of your um, to, to help with some of your, your your metabolic issues. So, like for you know pre diabetes or type two diabetes, I always say, can I? Has anybody ever talked to you about nutrition and exercise and weight loss to to take care of this as opposed to medicines? And they go, well, not really. They you know they just kind of said I need to lose weight, and it kind of turned me off. So I kind of asked permission to to discuss it, and then I go, okay, well, tell me what you're currently doing. And based on what they're currently doing, and we kind of go back and forth, we try to develop a plan together of 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 something that may be close to what what I would consider is I think is a good diet, but hopefully it's based on what they're already doing, you know. So, um, yeah, and I know you guys, PN, talk about that all the time. That's you know a lot of where I learn this stuff from. So um, I'm trying to think of an example. The other day, I I had patient talking about maybe ice cream it's their or their vice and they have to have a full bowl every single night that's what they said and we, I said well you know I'm not going to take it away from you what if you just would you be able to do it maybe once or twice a week instead and would you be able to do like a half bowl and share it with your wife or whatever and uh, what about three times sure you know fine <laughs> whatever you know so it's basically going off based based on their current um, their program and or what they're doing and then kind of uh, improving it you know, based on their life as opposed to what I think is perfect, um, if that makes sense. I'm sure that I don't know if I rambled on about that. But. <laughs> yeah, so you sort of navigate and negotiate together to find a solution. And I, I love this idea of asking permission. Like, what a crazy concept, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so okay, so let's let's sort of pursue this a little bit further. So let's let's imagine that I have come to see you, and I am not really bought into the idea of changing stuff. You know, maybe I've got a long-standing chronic health problem that's clearly related to my behaviors and lifestyle, and and maybe I've got a lot of stress, a busy job, travel a lot, whatever. I'm not getting my sleep. Maybe I'm eating a lot of junk food. I'm maybe emotionally eating whatever. But I'm, you know, despite knowing that I have a chronic disease, I'm not completely bought in to the idea of changing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, working from this client-centered perspective, how might you address that? Like, take me through a little bit of that interaction where I'm a client that's really, you know, I'm aware of the situation. It's not a lack of information. It's, I'm just not ready, willing, and able to go there with you. I mean, how would you address uh, that? It's a, that's an extreme, I mean, it's very common, especially, so right now I'm working on being both an obesity specialist and a family doctor. And we're going to probably separate the clinic because, you know, people that are already in that readiness to change, they're, they're already, you know, there. They get referred to me, you know, as a, as a specialist for their obesity. But there's a whole other population where I'm getting them right where at that stage where you're talking about. They're, you know, they're in that pre – maybe they're just in the pre-contemplative state or contemplative or whatever um, – and they know what to do. They're just they're just not ready. And so, I I I ask them what they're kind of doing right now, and and ask them what do you think you could do to improve on that. Well, you know, you know, first I ask permission, of course, and then, well, what do you think you could do? Well, and they start talking about it, and and you know, the whole active listening thing. I just kind of sit there and look at them, and and maybe just restate what they said or reflect on what they said, and they. They just keep talking and sometimes they kind of start talking and convince themselves into it or if they say, you know, I'm just, I'm just not ready right now. I, I think I got a lot of stuff on my plate. Um, I say, okay. And basically I say, okay, well, you know, if you're ready sometime, I'm here to help because a lot of other doctors, what they'll do is, you know, if they're smoking or something like that, you know, you need to quit. You know, you're going to get lung cancer. You know, you're going to have heart disease. You know, it's affecting your blood pressure. I mean, they they already know that there's so many there's so much stuff out there you know <laughs> they know smoking's bad for them and so whenever I bring up smoking or something like that they'll go I know I know I need to quit and I go no I know I'm not gonna not gonna bring it up any further I just wanted to know how much you're smoking right now and if you want to quit someday you just come I'll help you and what's really interesting is because I you know I have you know, whatever three six month follow ups with some of these patients they'll come back and they'll say, you know what, I'm ready to quit now. And it's it's almost like, you know, you put the bug in the ear, you didn't push them, you know, the resistance type of thing. 
and they all of a sudden come back and, and, and want it. So I, I'm very hands off. I, 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 if I bring something up and they start kind of pushing back, I just, I pull back very fast and just you know, not worry about it basically. Um, and a lot of times they come around within, you know, a few months, even if I didn't schedule them for a follow up, they go, they call them like, I want, I want help with the smoking or, or diet or whatever. So it's kind of, I'm very, I'm very hands off basically. Yeah. It's very interesting too, how having that sort of non-judgmental flowing with the client approach really like paradoxically creates change because I know that a lot of coaches push right? Like their first impulse is to push and convince and argue and, and try to haul people into change, which then creates less change, right? Whereas you're doing yeah. the opposite. And again, paradoxically, apparently, it creates more change. And it, it makes sense if you know how humans work. But on the surface right. level, you'd think, well, like, how could that work? But it, it certainly does, right? It's sort of a long term unfolding process in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's actually really cool. Cause it, you know, I, I think you and I talked when I was an intern, just out of medical school. I think I came to the, the PN, um, meeting like whatever it was, you know, four or five years ago or whatever at the white Oak. And you know, it was, it was frustrating cause I'm, you know, I'm fresh out and ready to start giving nutritional advice and everything like that, getting people healthy. And, and most people, yeah, unfortunately, most people just don't want to hear it at, for, at, at least at first. And and after a while, you start developing the you know tr- start practicing more of the motivational interviewing and all this different stuff, and you start being a little bit more hands off. And they come, it's really cool. They do they start coming around, and it's like wow, this is kind of the cool thing about being a primary care or general practitioner because you develop a relationship with these people, and if you're not a jerk. <laughs> they they start they start coming back and wanting your help. So it's cool. <laughs> Not being a jerk, you heard it here first. Yeah, this it, is a good way. <laughs> I mean, no, but seriously, there are some doctors that are just jerks, and they just have poor, just bad bedside manners. And it's like, why? You know, just don't be a jerk, and and these patients will, you know, they'll love you. I mean, it's it's not even. I don't know. It, it, sometimes it's just it seems like common sense, but maybe people are burned out. I don't know. Well, and this leads me into my next question really nicely, which is that one of the things you've talked about in in both your book and then kind of in your online presence is how important it is to treat obesity or any of these chronic situations with compassion. And in fact, the, the dedication of your book says, this book is dedicated to my patients. If you don't give up on me... I won't give up on you. And I, I thought that was yeah. lovely. And like, so why is that approach of compassion important? And I, I mean, we've touched on this a little bit, but like, how, like, why is compassion so unique? I mean, how does that compare to what you see now in terms of how obesity is generally approached by, say, just a, a regular family doctor? Yeah, there, there's so many biases out there, especially in stigma, stigmatizations against those with obesity. So, um, they've been through the gamut of, of just feeling like crap. So you're given just an ounce of care, an ounce of compassion, and they just open up. It's, it's really, it's interesting. I mean, because, you know, I, I hear it from patients. They, oh, you're overweight. You're, you're obese. Um, you have diabetes because of it. You're going to die. You need to lose weight. And they're like, no crap. I know I need to lose weight. <laughs> you know, so you, if you just, if you just kind of tell them you care and, and, and if, it's 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 good to know kind of the pathophysiology of obesity and and basically making it that you understand that it's it's hard and that it's it's not easy and it's it it part of it may be their fault but a lot of it's maybe not and then not to you know some people whenever I say this kind of stuff it's not your fault that that you have your obesity people think you're coddling them but. I use that and then empower them, you know, so people think you're taking away the, the, their ability. You're just kind of saying they're helpless. And it's like, no, I make sure they understand that it is, there's a very good reason why they're like this and that now I'm going to be here to help them through the, no matter what, basically. And I always say, you know, sometimes we're not going to be able to figure out, we're not, maybe you won't lose weight in this first month, but I promise you, if you keep coming back, we will figure it out. Or I will find somebody that's going to help you if it's not me. Because I mean, I try to be pretty confident because <laughs> I, I do a pretty good job, but you never know. 
you know, some, uh, but I tell them just do not give up on me because I will find a way for you to, to be happy, you know, with your weight. So they open up, they're used to people just being jerks from all points of life, family, friends and doctors. And so just being given a little bit of that compassion and, and understanding, they, they, they do a lot better. So this then leads nicely into talking about your book, The Fat Loss Prescription. And so for those of you listening who haven't seen this book yet, it's a short and very simple little book, maybe less than 100 pages or so. And it's really a very clear and concrete step-by-step guide for working through weight loss, especially with the purpose of improving health. And so like, tell me what prompted you to write this book? Because I mean, there's a million books out there about how to lose weight, right? So what was that gap there for you between what's already available and what you wanted to say? So the story kind of goes is I I keep getting the patients like, you know, we have our 20 minute sessions. I see them visits and they just go, well, I, I want more. And, I, you know, I do my Facebook stuff and whatever, but they wanted a, a book. And so I'm like, you know, there are a couple books out there I kind of like, but I, there was nothing that I really like, wow, this book, yep, you need to have it. And so I was like, I, I think I could probably put together a small, you know, little, you know, almost like a patient handout type of thing and give it to my patients. But when am I going to have the time to do it? So ironically, I had to move um, up to Maryland because my, my wife's, you know, she's a Navy fellow now in, in neonatology. So she was in residency. She graduated pediatric residency, got a fellowship in neonatology, a little baby doctor. But now she's up here near D.C. And so I had to get a new job. Well, my new job didn't wasn't going to start for an extra month. They screwed up with the credentialing process, which is how you take insurance and get money and all this different stuff. So I had a month off and I was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I better do it now. So I just started getting to writing and I was like, I need to make this concise. I need to make it no fluff because, you know, a lot of these diet books, they'll, they'll get into the background of, of and history of all this bull crap that doesn't even matter, you know, and, and, then, and then start getting to some cockamamie like theory of uh, hypothesis of why they think obesity, you know, is caused by, you know, whatever, gluten or, you know, wheat and, and, and fructose and, you know, whatever. It, I mean, it's literally, it's, a, it's that's, that's the thing with these diet books. And so I was like, well, if I just go by the, you know, the, the obesity um, guidelines and, and evidence-based stuff and just basically take the stuff that, that um, these, you know, obesity doctors are doing at these conferences and, and what we're learning at, in our curriculum and stuff and just, I could just make it a um, make it into a concise, patient-friendly book, and so I kind of wanted to just do that, and I did. <laughs> it's just pretty much wanted to make you know make it an easy read too for my patients, especially. Yeah, I have to commend you actually on like as someone who's not necessarily a trained writer, your writing style is actually lovely because it's beautifully clear, concrete, concise, like it's simple, it's highly understandable. So you kind of knocked this one out of the park uh, on your first try. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. you. And I'm really struck by your first chapter title, which is it's not your fault, why it's so easy to gain weight and so hard to lose it. And so this kind of circles back around to what you were talking about but earlier. So like, why isn't it my fault if I have too much body fat or if I'm struggling with my weight? Because some people might say it's all about my behaviors and, and my choices. So like, tell me about that framing of how it's not my fault necessarily. Right, right. So um, it, it all kind of starts back to, you know, I, I, I have this stupid little story. It's not a stupid little story, but it's a fun little story. I do it. I did a, made a blog about it and I do it in my lectures is, is the, is obesity a choice? It's a stupid rhetorical question. It doesn't have an, and you can't, <laughs> it, it starts going into free will and stuff. But, but the, basically think of two moms, one mom is nice and, and, and lean and she's working out and she's, um, uh, doesn't gain a lot of weight during pregnancy. And then another mom who's sedentary and, and, uh, eats a lot of junk food and, and things like that, gains a lot more weight. Well, it all starts basically there, not only genetics, but something called epigenetics, where, you know, based on your mother's behavior and maybe even your father's and grandparents' behavior, those will have lifelong impacts on you. So, you know, it's, it's that, that wasn't your choice. That wasn't your fault. 
Then all of a sudden you could get into family dynamics. You know, we could go over breast and bottle fed and all these other things when you're younger. But family dynamics, what if your family is, you know, you, they got a lot of money. You're sitting around having family dinners, lots of produce, lots of plants, drinking a lot of water. Um, that's, that's, your, that's, that's the one lean family's uh, dynamic. And then the other family, the mom may be working a second job to make ends meet, kids eating pizza in front of the TV um, and drinking a soda. So this is all when you're young. You're, not making, you're, you're really not making these choices. You know, this is all kind of these were made for you. You don't know any better. Then, um, then maybe, you know, still with the family dynamics, the lean family, uh, they're working out. Um, you know, the dad's, you know, has time to work out with his kid or the mom or whoever. Um, then the other kid, maybe he's got some behavioral problems and, and for some reason was off labelly uh, prescribed, uh, antipsychotic or something like that, um, that made him cause, caused him some weight gain. Um, and then all of a sudden, all we see at the end is, is, is someone who's lean and then someone who's has obesity. And we think we know them. We, you look at somebody with obesity and you say, oh, that person's a, a lazy bastard. You know, that's, I mean, seriously, I, that's why, you know, some of the stuff I post on Facebook, oh my, I just, I, I can't even, I don't even have, I don't even know why I post anymore. Cause it's just, you know, it ends up in a fight, but it takes a lot of energy, but you know, people just go, no, this is, this is a fat, lazy slob. That's, that's just them. And it's like, no, you don't know that. You don't know anything about what happened and all the driving factors um, that, that went into their obesity. And maybe they probably, in fact, have tried often. In fact, most of the patients, I mean, you guys do the surveys probably with, with, with PN, but my patients, they've all tried Weight Watchers. They've all tried Jenny Craig. They've done Nutrisystem. They've done Atkins South Beach. Paleo, everything that you can imagine, P90X, and it's like they're trying. They're not trying to, you know, they're a successful businessman. They're they're a successful teacher, even doctors, nurses, all these different things. They're not lazy in any other aspect of life. So why why do you think they're lazy just because they have this obesity? And so, you know, there's these driving factors that push people that way. Not only genetics, you know, it's actually a small part, but our environments, as you know, you guys talk about a lot. And, and so, you know, I just get so upset thinking that, you know, people think they know someone, you know, when, when they don't realize that this obesity issue is so complex. And not only that, is when somebody tries to lose weight, the factor, the, the forces driving them to regain that weight are so strong, ridiculously strong, that it's, it's, it's a miracle when people do lose weight and keep it off, really. And so, I, you know, I get really fired up talking about it because it's it's a it's a complex issue that's and and it's not to say oh it's complex well so let's just not worry about it it's 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 an interesting issue but it's it's something that we you know i think all need to understand and then have some more empathy for these these, these those with obesity that just you know maybe maybe part of it is laziness you know for some i'm not going to say it's not but i i'm not going to pretend that i know them you know so Mm-hmm. So I'll get off my my soapbox for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I like how you're approaching the the issue in a very nuanced and very human focused way. And so, I mean, in your book, you've got a lot of basics, right? A, a lot of straightforward, implementable basics, and probably things that people would recognize or be familiar with, like how you <laughs> eat and how active you are. But I, I'd like to talk about some of the things that people might not know about how fat loss can be affected by other factors. And so if you're, if you're willing to share, I mean, maybe let's start with a personal story from your own history. You've had some experience with how a change in thyroid health can affect your physical well-being. And now in your case, it was a little bit different, sort of dialed you up rather than dialed you down. But can you talk a little bit generally about, you know, what this taught you about the role of hormonal health, for example, in determining your overall metabolic health? Right. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, a lot of patients, they come in with trying to lose weight. They, they, they want to make sure they, you know, they always hope it's their thyroid, you know, because it's always a thing. It's, I think it's my thyroid. And it's like, well, actually it's, you got to make sure that the thyroid's not contributing. 
know, because if you miss that, you're going to look like a jerk and, and an idiot, if you're, especially if you're a doctor. So one of the things we, you know, we make sure that's not the thyroid. And sometimes there is some thyroid involvement. So that's, that's one of the things. Thyroid is definitely uh, uh, something we want to not miss um, when it comes to um, um, weight gain. Um, but also, you know, those with obesity and, you know, and even like, you know, the adiposopathy with the diabetes, there, there are some changes in the brain, um, that your reward pathway and, and, and wanting to eat hunger, desire to eat, they're disrupted a little bit. And so like these hormonal changes, you know, while maybe they're not making you gain weight, they're going to. Uh, that's going to have a have, make you have a hard time really sticking to a diet and exercise plan. Uh, potentially, you're going to feel tired. You know, sleep apnea. That's the one thing I want to make sure they're not going to want to stick to a diet and exercise plan if they have sleep apnea. You're going to feel tired. You know, so um, both hormonally and all these different things uh, medically, medicines too. By the way, are, are a big one that I kind of discuss in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, maybe you could comment just generally on some common types of medications that can be part of this very complicated equation. Yeah, the the psychiatric medicines, you know, the the different antidepressants. They're the newer ones aren't as bad, although they still they can affect um, affect your weight a little bit. Paxil or paroxetine is the big one for the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but um, all of those may have some some possible impact but the 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 stuff where people do uh, the the doctors start prescribing off label like the antipsychotic medicines like the the uh, Seroquel and things like that that's those are going to have a large effect and and also like if you if you're bipolar if you have uh, bipolar um you're on some of these um some of these medicines uh these mood stabilizers or anticonvulsants man those are really powerful and you're going to have a tough time losing weight but they may be necessary i don't i don't want to take anybody off those medicines and have them you know go on amazon prime and buy the whole you know <laughs> internet so um yeah a lot of these medicines can affect that it's it's important to know uh because if if you're if you're trying to lose weight and, and there maybe there's, a, there's another option, you know, alternative, uh, you know, that's why I kind of list all the alternatives in there and, and what I kind of do with some of them. And then just knowing that they could be a barrier, I think is important. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you present it nicely. It's not this kind of either or thing, which I think tends to happen uh, on the, on the internet, right. Which is like, it's always this, or it's always that. And if you're doing this, yeah. you cannot do that. Right. I mean, I think what you get at is this idea of like, let's, we, we have a, a number of balls that we're juggling here. Right. And let's try to improve the quality of the juggling of, of multiple things so that collectively we could weave together, you know, maybe some improved quality of life or some improved health outcomes, but there's no like single thing that we're going to fix necessarily. I think that's such a key part of your message. Yeah, right. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of the whole patient centered or client centered approach is like, well, let's kind of see how, what can we change in in you? And, And maybe it's not just one thing, maybe, you know, maybe it's just a couple of these things. Maybe, maybe it's none of these things, but Maybe you need a coach. You know, that's kind of my. That's kind of one of the things in there I do talk about. I was like, you know, let's let's not let's not uh, kid ourselves and think that uh, this this book is going to solve anything. But you know, that's why I try to promote getting somebody to maybe help you in support groups and stuff like that. That may be the key for a social aspect too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. The social support part is definitely key. You need you need your tribe and your team and really. As, yeah. as many people as possible, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you can't have yeah. too many. Yeah. Yeah. Ironically, a lot of your family members, you know, maybe they're not the best to be on your team, which is awful to say, but that's, they kind of, there's some studies kind of coming out about family members. Maybe, yeah. You know, ironically, random people on the internet may be more helpful than people like family members. So. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. true. We, we definitely see that a lot in, in our coaching program. And I, I sort of joke sometimes 
that we break up marriages, <laughs> although we form new ones. It's like this kind of a self-regulating system, right? But, but <laughs> which isn't strictly true, but, but what we definitely do see is that sometimes, I mean, some, like a lot of the time partners are amazing and they're supportive. And even if yeah. they're not willing to make the changes, they're like, yeah, go you. Right. But, <laughs> but at other times the partners or other family members are kind of deeply invested in not changing uh, for a whole variety of reasons. I mean, maybe they, they don't want their routines disrupted. Maybe they like the partner to be a certain way, right? It has particular meaning yeah. for them or whatever. So it's definitely Some a weird very, stuff. It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, because on the surface, you'd be like, well, why wouldn't a, a, you know, a spouse want their spouse to get healthy? And it's, it's not always as straightforward as that. Sometimes it is, no. right? Sometimes you see whole families getting into it and it's wonderful, right? It's a really nice team approach, mm. but you, you definitely see all kinds of fascinating social dimensions to this. And, and as you said before, you can really appreciate, um, you know, why some people might be suffering because again, no one else in their life is being very nice to them right now. Right. And yeah. they come along yeah. and you're the doctor and you're the first person that's been nice to them in a while. And it's, it's kind of amazing, really. Yeah. 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 No, it, it is. It's cool. And that's why I do like the support group stuff because then, all of a sudden, you know, the patients and stuff, they start connecting with each other and they start talking. I mean, it's stuff that I can't even, I wouldn't be able to help them with that I, maybe I haven't experienced and they start sharing their experiences and it, it's a, it's an intro, it's a cool thing. I really like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's say then that for whatever reason, I am considering getting weight loss surgery. So I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, heavy enough that it, it seems like a good option for me. Now, what are some of the factors that a doctor would consider in terms of evaluating whether this surgery is even an appropriate option for me? Yeah. So in the U S it's approved for people with a BMI of over 40 and then over 35 plus a comorbidity. So something like type two diabetes, you know, sleep apnea and you know, something like that. Um, so that's like the first step. The other thing is, is that, you know, if the patient's considering it, those are, those are, those are absolutely needed just to get approved. But, um, you know, you, you also gotta, um, you also gotta see if they're a good candidate for it from other perspectives too, because there's, there's some psychological things that go into that you just want to make sure. And there's a lot of things that actually insurances make make sure they do because they probably don't even want to pay for it I, you know but um you know it's making sure they're ready for this type of thing it's a it's a because it's not a small procedure i mean there's a few different types of procedures but you know the, the bigger ones the ruin why gastric bypass is a, is a big one to undergo and and, and you want to make sure that they realize this isn't going to be a quick fix this is all it's going to be is a tool in order for you to stick to the to a, a diet and exercise plan and that's why i think a lot of people on the internet get um, get upset because they're like, "Oh, they just want to go ahead and get the surgery because they can't, they can't, uh, they can't handle the, just the diet and exercise." But it's like, really, no, no, this is really just you got to use it. It, it. it will not work. People will gain back their weight if they do not change their habits. I see it all the time, I and mean, it happens a lot. So it's it must be looked at as just a very powerful and you know um, risky tool potentially to to stick to a good. Um, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a big a big step for people. No question. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Now, you've recently, over the last few years or so, tried a number of experiments on yourself with your own eating and training, and and in many cases, you tested yourself as you went along, which is, I think, a relatively less common thing. So, like those of us who might try different ways of eating or training, we don't usually have access to things like blood tests to show us some objective data on what's really happening. And I'd be curious to know, like, what did you discover from those experiences of experimentation, especially gathering this data about yourself? And were there insights that you were then able to share with clients afterwards? Yeah, the, the two, the two uh, coolest ones, I think, and the most profound ones. Um, number one, when I did a bodybuilding competition and got down to very low levels of body fat um, and, and uh, low levels of calories taking in, 
not only did I feel tired and, you know, libido's low, you know, I can't, I hate to say it, but, you know, erections not happening as often, which is like, wow, this happens when you're like older and you have heart disease. <laughs> so it's kind of like, all right, so I know this is happening because I'm at low levels of body fat. We talk about leptin and stuff like that and, and low uh, calories taken in and you, I got my levels checked and yep, it, it, yep, I was definitely hypogonadal and that's from a star, you know, starvation aspect. And so it's, it's, you know, kind of seeing that and, and putting it together with the labs is, is kind of, um, you know, able to, and, and also the irritability, just not even, not even from a hormonal standpoint, but irritability of being on a diet, it, it was, you know, it's a little bit different, but, um, you can actually relate with patients a little bit more. Um, that, and then also I did a, a vegan, um, experiment for a month and within a month I had changes that are similar to when you go on a very potent statin medicine, um, for like my cholesterol. I didn't have bad, that bad of cholesterol for my risk factors or anything like that before, but I changed to a, you know, a vegan diet, absolutely no animal products. Um, and just the my cholesterol levels had never been that low. And it's actually pretty cool. It shows how powerful it is. Um, and so, you know, things like that are, are really cool to see because uh, with the bodybuilding thing, I, you know, I could feel that I was tired. But then from, a, from the vegan standpoint, I, you know, you can't really tell. Not, not to mention, actually, my testosterone didn't change at all, which that's what people say. Oh, you're, you're not eating meat and saturated fat. You're going to have low testosterone. Well, that didn't happen. And that's, that, that's not even um, evidence-based anyway. So, but it's cool to see the, the cholesterol and lipids change um, a big time. Which also happened on the low carb diet in the other direction, right? Yeah. So um, going on a going on a, a low carb, high saturated fat diet um, always kind of brings them up a little bit for me. Um, I did actually do a, a a Mediterranean ketogenic type of diet, not a you know not this ketogenic diets that these guys are drinking butter and things like that. I I actually um, did a lot of nuts and olive oil. And I wanted to see. I, I, I'd be too scared to do the butter thing because I did. I've I've done that lower carb, but not necessarily ketogenic, like very, very, very low carb. Um, and with the Mediterranean um, lipids, did just fine. And so that was that was an interesting experiment too. Basically, I you know everybody talks about going keto and getting keto adapted. So I just wanted to do that and see what it felt like. And I go from being able to run a mile and whatever under six minutes, and then all of a sudden, in the in the adaptation phase, like could barely even move, like you know, twelve minute mile because I, I you kind of have that uh, what do they call it, the keto flu or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and then and then and then all of a sudden, it was like a spark or a, you know, flip of a switch. I I one day I woke up, I was like, all right, I'm gonna go. And then all of a sudden, it was like back to being normal. So that was kind of cool, becoming uh, keto adapted. Um, and that's that's something that I wanted to be able to do because some patients, maybe they would uh, do better on a ketogenic diet for satiety purposes. I just I didn't want to put people on it if I never experienced it because you know it's, it, you're putting people on a pretty restrictive diet, and you know you, I, I wanted to be able to to say, hey, you're going to feel like this and, you know, stick with it if you can just for a little bit longer and whatever. Well, I admire your commitment to walking the walk and <laughs> <laughs> and taking one for the team before you uh, prescribe it to other people. And I, I, I share your perspective on this. I think it's absolutely essential that as much as possible, we don't make our clients do what we haven't tried ourselves. And obviously some things yeah. are outside that scope, but, uh, you know, as much as possible, I, I remember with our level two coaching program at one point, and I'm kind of giving this away to anyone who's considering the program, but at one point we asked the students to do a food journal. And this is a food journal yeah. that nobody sees, like only they see it, only the students see it. And, and the students are coaches who are giving food journals to their clients. And about half the people were like, this is terrible and I don't want to do it. <laughs> and I was like, isn't that interesting because you're making your clients do it. And so, you know, all these feelings that are coming up, all the resistance and the anxiety and the, you know, obsessive scanning for whatever you think is problematic, 
that's what your clients go through. And we're not even looking at your food journals. I mean, imagine knowing that someone was going to scrutinize your eating habits. So uh, as much as possible, we definitely should be drinking our own medicine, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think so. I, and, you know, even I've taken, um, you know, certain medicines and stuff. So it's, it's, it's interesting to be able to tell patients, yeah, you're going to have side effects like this maybe and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, especially with the thyroid thing, it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, I understand you're not feeling right. So maybe we can adjust it to, um, you know, where your levels, your labs may look, you know, what we consider good, but you're just, you're still not feeling right. Let's adjust it a little bit more. Maybe it'll make you feel better. So that's, I think it is important and it's helped me at least relate to patients. Mm-hmm. And also your experience of going hypogonadal, just to flip the discussion away from obesity towards the opposite pole for a second, you wrote an interesting article a few years ago about um, a younger guy who had gone hypogonadal as a result of training too much and doing intermittent oh, yeah. fasting. I mean, can you speak briefly about that? Because I thought that was just such an interesting case. And because it would be emblematic, yeah. I think, of any kind of high-powered young athlete or strength and conditioning kind of guy who was looking for that edge. So just kind of briefly outline that scenario and what happened. Yeah, I see a, a few of these cases per year, especially with the with the internet um, and and the, the dieting scene on the internet, the fitness uh, scene. So basically, um, you know, people get into the diet; they want to get leaner, and so they start doing everything that they can. And you know, intermittent fasting was pretty big back in whatever two thousand eleven or twelve or whatever. And everybody's doing it. You know, it's like, well, I, in order to get leaner, I'm going to have to even intermittent fast harder, you know, type of thing. And eventually, all of a sudden, the calories get down to a point to where it's like, hey, you're you're at a caloric deficit that's lower than you know what I would be doing for my you know, patients with obesity type of thing. And they don't realize it. Their their thyroid's going off a little bit too, and and they're because their body's trying to protect itself and then and then their testosterone starts going lower and and they think and then they may even go to a doctor and the doctor doesn't work it up appropriately unfortunately and then puts them on testosterone replacement when all they really do was eat some more and stop obsessively exercising and and it's it's that's when it comes down to you got to relate with the patients well you got to get a good history because if you, you know, if they, if, if I had a doctor test my testosterone at, when I did that thing, they would have said, oh my God, you're hypogonadal. Hopefully they would have worked it up, but not always. They, they may not have, you know, had good training and they might have just said, here, here's some, here's some cream or some shots. And of course, right when I was, you know, that happens with my patients and myself is basically get up to a, a good weight where you feel comfortable. It doesn't have to be overweight but just a little bit heavier than where you were eating more um may have to cut back on the exercise for just a little bit and all of a sudden it, it just goes back to normal um uh and i see i see this a lot in, in especially the internet it's it's rampant um unfortunately but um hopefully you know getting the word out there um uh will help people realize hey maybe maybe i'm not eating enough maybe that's why my testosterone is low and it seems ridiculous but you know people starving themselves they want to get leaner they want to look good um and do some crazy stuff yeah and i mean this goes for women too right and i think it's it's interesting to see it happen in men because this, the signs are not quite as apparent sometimes right whereas yeah. with with women it's like oh where's where's my period kind of thing and, and so that can be a fairly immediate indicator whereas with men i think it can be a little bit more subtle sometimes not always but sometimes it's like there's nothing really wrong, but you just don't feel good. Like you just, you kind of slowly lose your mojo over a long time. And eventually you kind of start f- forgetting what it was even like to feel good. Right. So you don't even have that yeah. reference point in a way. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we're coming to an hour, so let me just <laughs> wrap up this conversation by asking my last question, which is, for you, I mean, what's what's on the horizon? Like, what's exciting? What's coming up? What's giving you hope for the future? I mean, what's kind of coming down the river for you that is an interesting area of study or an interesting practice or just, you know, something that's uh, appealing to you about the future? Yeah, I'm really into um, not not only like the business of medicine, but I'm really into patient, innovative patient care. So right now the system is so broken. I mean, it's awful. You get... 
10, 15 minutes with a patient, sometimes 20 to 30 if you're, if you're very lucky. You can spend longer with another patient, but that means you're going to cut into other patients' time. So I'm, I'm kind of interested in different ways uh, to approach um, not only primary care, but just you know, BC medicine altogether. I think u- utilizing technology is going to be important for that. So I'm trying to think of ways to, um, uh, um, to, to maybe do something different out of the box kind of thinking when it comes to medicine. In the immediate future, you know, I'm, I'm going to be uh, transitioning to this obesity specialist plus a f- and then I'm and then splitting that time with uh, just uh, regular general practice or family medicine, um, uh, and then I'm not doing any weird nutritional experiments anytime soon. I'm trying to be normal for once, but <laughs> so that's basically what I'm doing. And uh, working out shirtless on the internet, of course. Oh, that's a that's given. how you roll. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> no clothes in your world, man. That's my that's my mo. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on here, Dr. Spencer, and uh, sharing your your very reassuring perspective in a way. It, it's really nice to know that there are doctors like you out there. Um, Spencer's book is The Fat Loss Prescription. I'm going to post a link to it on my site so you can find it and give copies out to all your friends and family and hopefully benefit from it. Thank you so much, Spencer. I really appreciate you coming on, taking the time to uh, to hang out and chat. It's always good to talk to you anytime. Mm-hmm.